You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. I'm joined today by Mark Dalder, political reporter for Newsroom New Zealand, based in Auckland. He's been writing remarkably compelling and detailed analyses now throughout the entire phase of the pandemic outbreak and how it's been understood and acted upon. And we wanted to take advantage of Mark's availability and his insights to talk today about what accounts for the outcomes we've seen in New Zealand, which are quite remarkable and intriguing and certainly relevant on the complete other end of the spectrum from what the United States has been experiencing. On the basics here, confirmed and probable cases in the country since late February, 1,555. That may have bumped up a bit, 22 deaths. Those numbers are pretty astonishing when you think about all of this. So first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the first phase. And by the first phase, I mean the phase that begins with in February with the discovery of the first case and rapidly in the course of just a little over three weeks, moves this country to shut borders and impose a pretty comprehensive lockdown that stretches out, I believe, for six weeks and achieves virtual elimination and an incredible story. So how do we begin to explain that? We know that it's a small scale population, 5 million isolated islands. They'd witnessed what happened in China and Taiwan, Singapore, low population density, low public transport. But there's a lot of other factors like a weak public health system, very poor preparedness, little contact tracing capacities that didn't necessarily argue for success. This was a country that had not experienced any devastating outbreaks like MERS or SARS or elsewhere. So how do we explain this, Mark? How do we explain this? And go ahead and give us a little more detail on the sequencing and actually what you observed in terms of these major developments. Sure. So I guess setting the scene prior to the emergence of COVID-19, you know, it's important to remember that New Zealand was not a SARS country or a MERS country. It wasn't one of these, even though it's geographically near East Asia, it wasn't one of these East Asian countries that had a scare with a coronavirus in the past decade or two. And in response to that, beefed up its public health system, its contact tracing capabilities, and, and so on. Um, New Zealand was in much the same position as, as most other, uh, I guess, Western nations. The Global Health Security Index, which was performed late last year and ranked all uh, of the world's countries on their pandemic preparedness, gave New Zealand a 54 out of 100. So not not a very good grade. No, not a vote of confidence. My parents wouldn't be too happy with that grade. So in addition to the, the low Global Health Security Index score, New Zealand hadn't updated its pandemic plan for a non-influenza pandemic uh, for many years. So the Last pandemic plan that specifically dealt with the coronavirus was developed in 2005, I believe. So just after the SARS. Uh, so pandemic. its national plan was for the wrong bug. That's correct. It's for the wrong virus. And the Ministry of Health and, and the government initially ran our response to COVID-19 off of the influenza pandemic plan, which was right. redeveloped in 2017. That assumes uh, an influenza pandemic. And influenza is, of course, very different from a coronavirus. The assumptions in, in that document are that the incubation period is extremely small, maybe a day or so between right. getting infected and becoming infectious. Little opportunity to intervene. Exactly. So 
things like contact tracing, case isolation, testing, all the stuff that is sort of fundamental to the COVID-19 response isn't given that much credence in the document. There also isn't a, a whole lot of attention paid to keeping it out of the country. So it, it lays out the response in a number of phases. The first one is keep it out. And there's language around how you could deploy people to airports to check temperatures, monitor for symptoms as people get off airplanes. But there wasn't really an expectation that the borders would ever close. And, and nowhere in the entire document are the borders closing. Uh, is that sort of mentioned as an option? So tell us, how did it happen then that, you know, from the end of February until the latter part of March, in the space of 24, 25 days, this country moves to take very dramatic steps to seek elimination and wins public trust and compliance with that? How did that happen? What were the factors? Yeah, so I think part of it is... Um, from the start of the pandemic, the communications from the government have been very clear. This came actually in a number of ways. Part of it is that the media, in my opinion, at least did a very good job of playing along, of reporting facts and not reporting things that weren't confirmed, and trying to break down some of the complicated concepts of epidemiology so that people could understand it. The government, of course, also had significant messaging in terms of billboards, television ads, and so on particularly as we moved into lockdown. And once we were in lockdown, there was this daily press briefing by the civil servant chief executive of the Ministry of Health and by the prime minister. But how did they achieve the consensus that they wanted to go in really fast and really hard on this, which was not the initial thinking? You know, the initial thinking was incrementalism, was let's watch this and adjust ourselves as we see what the threat looks like versus we're going to go all in really fast and seek elimination. It was a dramatic, unusual decision. Definitely. The way the pandemic plan puts it is you plan for it, you keep it out. When that fails, you try and stamp it out. When that fails, and it assumes it will fail because influenza, once yeah. you have more than a handful of cases, is, is just going to be spread throughout the community by the time you realize that you have it. You manage it, and then you manage it post-peak, and then you recover from it. Those are the sort of phases in the influence of pandemic plan. So what that lends itself to is, is what you know we would later come in, in, in mid-March to call a mitigation strategy, something like what the United Kingdom was considering in terms of a, an approach where you'd think it's not desirable to go into lockdown, to shut everything down, just to handle this virus, which might not even be that bad. So we're just going to count on our public health system to deal with it. The difference between New Zealand and, and other countries that did for longer attempt that mitigation approach is that we didn't have a public health system that was capable of dealing with it. Our public health system has been eroded through many years of, of what some would say was just neoliberalism sort of run amok. The current government campaigned in 2017 on the issue of upgrading hospitals, which allegedly had sewage running through their walls. So it's not um, the most high tech health system, and it certainly wasn't uh, ready to deal with a COVID-19 surge. Uh, I reported the week, I believe, before we went into lockdown, that the Ministry of Health didn't know how many ventilators there were in the country because we have a regional health system. So each individual regional board had its own stock take or was undertaking its own stock take. Mm -hmm. And it took several weeks for each of them to get it up to the Ministry of Health. But the number was under 400, which isn't uh, enough if you have a serious outbreak in, say, Auckland, a city of 2 million people to seriously ventilate enough people. You'd, you'd have an Italy-type situation. So there was this recognition, and the second factor of it was luck, right? 
New Zealand got our first case on February 28th, and we didn't get a whole bunch of cases after that. Uh, it wasn't until mid-March that you started seeing cases coming in in terms of the double-digit numbers by day from overseas. So when you say luck, you mean luck in, in being able to achieve elimination? I think luck played several factors. In, in this scenario, uh, in this part of it, I would say in the early phase, we were lucky that our early phase was much later than other countries' early phases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we could look to Italy and Iran and see what hadn't worked. We could look to China and South Korea and Taiwan and see what had worked. And we did kind of make a decision, or I think there was an awareness within government that we didn't have to do the same thing that other Western countries were doing, and that we could go a bit of a different route. And do you believe, Mark, that watching the, the runaway outbreak in Italy and Spain perhaps also watching what was going on in Iran, that that really scared the bejesus out of people. I think that if you were in the New Zealand government in late February, early March, you were looking at Iran, you were looking at Italy, which has a decent health system, and Spain as well. And then you look to New Zealand, where you don't know how many ventilators you have. Your officials haven't been able to produce that number for you. And your health system has been eroded over decades. I don't think you'd be able to have any illusions that it would go a different way in New Zealand unless you took a different uh, strategy or a different tack. So the strategy is go in fast and really hard and buy yourself the space and time to build the capacities behind you that you don't have today. And that was what the strategy eventually became. I think the point where the government realized that that was the option was around the release of the Imperial College London paper that also changed the strategies in the United States, the United Kingdom and, and other countries. It sort of modeled what mitigation would look like. Mm -hmm. And mitigation would look like in the US, it was something on the scale of 1.1 million deaths. Suppression then would drop that much, much more significantly. And so uh, my understanding is there was some modeling being done as well along the same model in New Zealand. I'm not sure if they had that in their hands at the time they sort of mm -hmm. started to change strategy. But there was a essentially a day-by-day -day shift from where the government went uh, from saying that there were testing criteria that you could only get a test if you had a connection with another case or connection to overseas travel, which means that we weren't actually testing for community transmission. And the government the next day would just come out and say, actually, if you need a test, if you have symptoms, call Healthline, which is our sort of 0800 health number, call your doctor and you'll be able to get a test. The government the same day would come out and say, we're no longer trying to flatten the curve, which was what had sort of predominantly been spoken about prior to that, because it's a mitigation strategy that assumes there, there has to be one big curve. So they make the decision that they're going to go hole in and crush the curve. Yeah, I, I think at that point, it was uh, there wasn't necessarily a belief or an expectation that you'd be able to totally eliminate it like New Zealand essentially has. But there was a belief that you'd be able to suppress it and contain it. So you'd have these small curves is what they started talking about. And if you look at the Imperial College London model, that's sort of the scenario where you impose restrictions, cases fall down, you lift restrictions cases go back up again, and then you impose them, and so on and so forth. Right. So you have this roller coaster, but you drive things down to such a limited baseline that it's manageable. Yeah. And I was struck by how much influence that Imperial College model had on New Zealand. It was really quite profound. I, I think the numbers in it were just so stark, and the fact that this was a very well-respected academic uh, internationally, and that it had sort of convinced Boris Johnson, of all people, perhaps to, to change his mind would have been enough to signal that it was something worth taking seriously. Like you alluded to, the, the second aspect of, of the reason to take this suppression approach was if you could break the chains of transmission early before they got out of control, 
if you could bring it down under control just for a little bit, then theoretically you could beef up that contact tracing, that testing, those public health resources, so that you would be able to open up and, and perhaps just manage it without having to keep going into lockdown like the model suggested. And did they create those capacities? Did they make good use of that time? I would say they certainly uh, made very good use of the time. When we went into lockdown, the public health units, which were in charge of contact tracing, were unable to handle the 70 or so cases a day that we were getting. Now they're able to handle a thousand cases a day, uh, or they have the surge capacity to do that. With tests, they went from testing less than 100 people per day up to testing. Now they can test Mm -hmm. up to 12,000 people per day. So the capacity is now there to handle sort of the increasing wave of an outbreak prior to the sort of Mm -hmm. proper outbreak breaking Mm -hmm. and contain it before it becomes something that's out of control. Now, the willingness of the public to buy in this plan called for quite a bit of sacrifice, six weeks of severe lockdown, economic costs, costs of all sorts. It enjoyed 80% approval within the public. Many people have attributed the success to the leadership skills of the Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern. Tell us a bit about that. What did she do that was exceptional in your view in accounting for these successes? I think she was in particular clear and concise, and she wasn't uh, afraid to say that things could get worse before they got better. She wasn't afraid to say that this was a nervous time for many people and to acknowledge that it would be a sacrifice, I think, and that people would experience the impacts of something like lockdown differently uh, and that all of the ways that they were experiencing them, you know, that that was something she could understand and that the government would try to address. In terms of sort of getting that public health messaging out there and explaining why a lockdown was necessary, there was a study just done a few days ago that, that found New Zealanders had a very, very advanced understanding of the epidemiology around the coronavirus. So a few Mm -hmm. stats, 97% knew that hand washing was a way to protect against it. 94% know that can be spread by people without symptoms. On the flip side, another 94% know that it's false that only elderly people get infected by it. And the same percentage know that it's false that 5G towers are spreading it. So there's an understanding now, and, and there was as we went into lockdown, about what the virus was and why it was important to lock down. The other reason I think that was helpful that succeeded was the way in which it was sort of rolled out. So the government on March 21, I believe, announced an alert level system, which was modeled off of Singapore's Mm -hmm. going from alert level one, where everything was contained and life was essentially like normal. Alert level two, where things were a little bit different, maybe certain bars, restaurants, sports stadiums, concert uh, venues would be closed. And you'd try and social distance a little bit, but you'd still generally be able to go to the shops. Then there would be an alert level three, which was sort of nebulously defined, but it's a scenario where if we think there might be community transmission, we would move there and try and really limit contact. And then alert level four was a a very strict lockdown. It was one of the strictest sort of policies that was implemented according to the Oxford stringency index. And the prime minister announced that that level system was going to be in place and said that we would be moving to level two. And at the time, officials did think we'd be in level two for a period of several weeks. But getting the system out there and allowing people to understand where we could be headed and how our actions even would be able to shape the the ways that, that the country would respond, I think that was really helpful. So it wasn't just sort of 
now we're going to ban people from going to some restaurants, but not others, and, and to this venue, but not that venue. Having four set levels at which people understand yes. what the rules are, I think helps people grasp and prepare themselves for something like lockdown. If you know it's a possibility, then you're able to better prepare yourself for it. As I understand it, Mark, as they were putting this framework together and debating where were they going to land in what period of time, how, the independent public health experts who were acting, Michael Baker and others, who were acting as close advisors to the government, were rallying around the idea of let's go to four, let's move to four. And they were being somewhat vocal about it. And ultimately, they won the argument with the government and they moved there. And at the same time, the opposition was in agreement, in rough agreement with this. In other words, you didn't have this issue, the decision itself politicized. You had in quite the opposite. You had a unity of purpose at a political and scientific level, and you had a unity of purpose that cut across you know, the, the, the ruling government versus the opposition. Can you tell us a little bit about how that happened? Yeah, I think um, in part it was, it may have just been sort of a, a political understanding that in times of crisis, the government of the day is going to get a boost in, in popularity and going against them mm -hmm. isn't going to be a good look. Um, but I think also, you know, to their credit, the, the opposition party, uh, in particular, the National Party, which is the largest party currently in parliament, handled its role responsibly in terms of seeing where there were scenarios in which they could hold the government to account for decisions or mistakes. They would do that. But there wasn't a sort of irresponsible, this is an opportunity to, to gain a few political points. The debate that happened in New Zealand was never political. The debate that happened in New Zealand was only scientific or, or epidemiological. And that debate did occur and it was carried out through the media, which I think allowed people to understand, you know, some epidemiologists say this, some say that, this is what the government's currently doing, they may do that. And having this range of options out there helped people understand the range of options that we could take and helped people get a better appreciation for the disagreements that were rooted in science here. You know, in looking at Jacinda Ardern's style and approach of communications. I mean, she drew on the experiences of the Christchurch killings, the tragedies from not far before that, right? In mid-March of 2019 was when you had all of these killings of Muslim citizens, a tragedy in which she really came to the fore as a major force of healing and reconciliation and kindness and authenticity and rallying the country in that period. And then this emerges, and she is doing live feed Facebook conversations from her home. She's doing a national address to the country. She's doing daily briefings side by side with her public health experts. I mean, it was a phenomenal communications and leadership example. Yeah. What were you seeing there in this period? And how do you tie it back to this very recent experience of this tragedy with the Christchurch killer? Yeah, in 2019, I think Jacinda Ardern had to deal with two crises. One was the, the mosque terror attack in, in which 51 people were killed. And she responded to that with, you know, a vow to change the country's gun laws and sort of a wide range of other legislative reforms or suggested reforms around things like hate speech and hate crime legislation. And I think a broader commitment to dealing with the issues of online hate and, and online violent extremism, which we've seen in, in the Christchurch call and so on. The other crisis that she dealt with was in December of 2019, there was a, an explosion of a volcano on White Island, right. which killed about 20 people as well. And this was another time where she was sort of called to respond to an emergency and had to 
communicate to the public to reassure them, but also not to sort of hide the truth, I suppose, to be realistic about what had happened and, and the, the grievousness of the situation. Some of the miscalculations, yeah. So I think that probably prepared her better than, you know, someone who hadn't been through that sort of situation for the coronavirus pandemic. Certainly the, the communications were, received very high praise. The, the study I referenced earlier found when people were asked to rate on a scale of zero to 10, how clear and helpful the prime minister's communication was. She got an 8.45, which is the highest rating. Ashley Bloomfield, the director general of the Ministry of Health, got an 8.19 as well. Communication about different alert levels, 8.26. Rules about lockdown, 8.13. So extremely high ratings from the public in terms of how clear the the communication was. You know, I I think the country sort of turned to the 1 p.m. briefings. They were always at 1 p.m. As I guess almost a moment of of connection or national unity, because this is the the one thing that we're we're all going through lockdown together, and and the one thing that we're all seeing. Yes. There's no sports on anymore. There's no concerts or just t- television reruns and and so on. So to some extent, it was just live entertainment, and and to some extent, I think it was a, a way for us all to bond together in learning about how the coronavirus was affecting New Zealand, getting the latest case numbers, but uh, also learning about how the government was responding to it. So what does that experience tell us about the nature of political culture in New Zealand? I think the political culture in New Zealand is very strong. The government recognized as we were moving into lockdown that parliament wouldn't really be able to meet in person anymore. So they set up a special select committee, which would be chaired by the leader of the opposition, which would meet via Zoom throughout the lockdown interview experts and government officials and so on, and be able to hold the government to account via that mechanism as opposed to question time and and the normal sort of parliamentary mechanisms through which the the opposition operates. And there was sort of a wide agreement. I think everyone credited both the government and the opposition with coming together to find a solution that would allow parliament to continue operating, even if it would be in a slightly different manner. And I think people appreciated that, even if there was a bit of backlash when the opposition would misstep and and go a little too far in the criticism or be seen to go too far in the criticism. One could argue that the lockdown saw the development of sort of a cult of personality around Jacinda Ardern and Ashley Bloomfield, who's just a civil servant, not an elected sort of parliamentarian. But by and large, I think people appreciated that parliament and the whole sort of legislature was on the same side of trying to protect New Zealanders from the coronavirus and also trying to buffer them from the impact of the lockdown from an economic perspective. Yeah, thank you. Let's talk about the more recent phase. Um, We get to June, success declared, begin to reopen, and a number of issues sort of come forward that I was hoping that you could illuminate for us. The challenge of how do you open up, right? I mean, this is a country that has pretty much cut itself off from the world. And there's a number of estimated 10,000 people who were migrants or tied to, you know, they had resident status or their family members who were outside at that time who wanted to come back in. Um, there are other big operations like the filming of Avatar that coming into the country, the America's Cup sailing match coming back. So there's all these pressures of who gets in, who doesn't get in, and how do you begin to reopen the country? Tell us a bit about how that's been handled, those challenges. Yeah, I think there's a consensus among 
New Zealand's sort of political parties and, and, and the broader population that the borders aren't just going to be open without any sort of safeguard for, for a long time still to come. And essentially, in the meantime, industries like international tourism are, are just going to have to be put on hold. Which is a huge part of the country's economy. It's, it's a pretty major chunk of GDP, but I think there's a consensus that that's the sacrifice that we have to make to protect the population from the, the health impacts of coronavirus. So the way the borders currently operate is you cannot enter the country unless you are a New Zealand resident. If you are a New Zealand resident and you manage to find a flight to enter the country, you'll be put into a hotel for 14 days. You'll be tested on the third day of your stay for coronavirus and the 12th day. If you develop symptoms, even if you haven't received a return to positive test, you'll be moved to a separate facility and quarantined there until you've been determined to be safe to sort of be released. Likewise, if you do test positive on your day three or day 12 test, you'll be moved to that quarantine hotel and held there until you have recovered from the virus. And Mark, the number of the number of rooms, the capacity for in these managed isolation facilities is fairly limited, right? I mean, you're, it's not like you have thousands of, of hotel rooms set aside. You have a capacity for what, 250 or 300 people at a time? The capacity has grown a bit since then, but the capacity is quite limited. There are certainly more people wanting to come in than can. And the government has had to ask Air New Zealand, the, the national airline, to restrict the number of flights coming in from other countries in line with the capacity available in the hotels. How is all of this going down with the tourist industry? I mean, this is a huge, huge hit and great uncertainty around the future. I mean, how long can that industry keep itself on hold before it begins to lose market share and begin to see more permanent damage? There's, I think, been an attempt to replace international tourism with domestic tourism. So over the recent school holidays, there was an uptick in domestic tourism in every locale in New Zealand, according to, to data from the National Statistics Agency. Most of them saw an increase of 15 to 20 percent, some of them even more than that, and a few uh, a bit less, but all of them saw an increase in domestic tourism. That, that's not enough to replace international tourism. There's also been government effort to uh, subsidize the tourism industry and a major campaign from a number of agencies to advertise to the world that New Zealand is still here and sort of waiting for when when they can return. So that that's part of it. Are you seeing more active opposition to these rigidities coming from the business interests who are going to really pay a big price? I think that, yes, the business interests have called for borders to open more quickly than I think there is consensus for. I think that's their sort of job to do, but I don't think that they necessarily expect it will happen. I think... New Zealand is very lucky to be COVID-free. I think New Zealanders understand how lucky we are, particularly when we look at Australia. Uh, you know, Melbourne has now returned to lockdown. And meanwhile, in New Zealand, we have had essentially zero cases outside of the managed isolation system since, I think, the beginning of June, if, if not earlier. Is it fair to say that folks in New Zealand are feeling a little nervous while they watch what happens in Melbourne and Sydney and elsewhere? There's actually a high level of anxiety around the reintroduction of of COVID-19. There's been a lot of sort of online hate, I suppose, directed at people returning from overseas, even though they are New Zealand citizens. And and many of them are not people who lived their lives overseas for, for decades and just came back now because it's convenient. Many of them are people who were vacationing overseas, who were visiting family and friends when, when borders closed and so on. But there's been sort of a, a social backlash, I suppose, against them because of the, the perceived threat that they entail, even though the government has done a 
fairly solid job of containing that, that threat at the border. Now, there's been a lot of discussion around the use of an app, COVID card, for tracing purposes. Tell us a little bit about that and how the government has attempted to move that forward while respecting people's privacy and civil liberties. Yeah, the sort of discussion around a digital contact tracing solution came up after the sort of first week of lockdown, after we were all understanding uh, of where we were and and where we could go forward if if lockdown started to work. At the time, Jacinda Ardern ruled out a mandatory solution or a non-voluntary solution. Mm -hmm. So things like the government tracking your location through your phone without your permission, that she, she said that wasn't going to happen. In the end, what was released was an app called NZ COVID Tracer. It doesn't use Bluetooth like a lot of the apps we've seen overseas. It's fairly simplistic. Businesses print out QR codes that are provided by the government and paste them on their, their wall. When you enter a business, you scan the QR code. If I go to a cafe, I scan the QR code. You go to a cafe five minutes later and scan the QR code. Later on, I test positive for coronavirus, then I can hit a button on my phone and it'll notify you and everyone else who scanned into that cafe within a certain period of time to then contact the Ministry of Health. It's very simple. All the data is stored on your phone. So the Ministry of Health will never be able to take it without your permission. Um, So it's very privacy focused as well. The reason it hasn't seen significant uptake in statistics, at least last week, uh, I don't have the updated ones, but last week about one in six New Zealanders had downloaded it. Mm -hmm. And of those, Mm -hmm. only one in 60 had recently scanned a QR code. So very low usage. The reason that occurred was when New Zealand moved down to level two, businesses were for the most part allowed to reopen, but they were required to have some sort of contact tracing solution, uh, which could be a pen and paper register. It could be an app, but the official app hadn't been released then. So there's a number of private sector apps that were also QR code based that were released. And that just sort of led to a crowded market and confusion amongst people where you would go to a store, there's eight different QR codes. You try and scan it with your app. It doesn't work because it's not the right app. So people have kind of given up on the app. So there's now been this suggestion, which was first aired in lockdown, um, but has been sort of lobbied for more strenuously since of a COVID card, which would be sort of credit card size device, or or maybe now the creators are saying more like a a USB dongle type thing. It's Bluetooth enabled, and it kind of works exactly like these Bluetooth apps we've seen overseas, except that every person in the country would just be sent one in the mail. You'd put it around your neck or put it in your wallet, depending on the format and walk around and it would sort of ping off everyone else who you were near. It would log your contacts. If you test positive, you'd be able to hand it over to the contact tracing teams who would then be able to know everyone who you had been with and and call them or uh, otherwise reach out to them. Mm -hmm. So far, it doesn't seem like the government is too keen on the idea. I think that part of it is the cost. It's estimated to be about $100 million. And there's some sort of specific flaws perhaps with with the plan you know if you're issuing a piece of hardware to everyone and there's a glitch on it what are you going to do then it's difficult to update sort of that sort of uh, embedded firmware and i think there's also just and, and this is seen in, in the same scenario with the app where people aren't using it because in new zealand life is essentially back to normal and people don't really think of covid19 as a problem uh, that, that threatens us even though people, in my opinion, personally, should be using the app because the border can fail. People could make it through. It's it's not mm-hmm. foolproof, or at least it's it's not a, a sure bet. I don't think that there's a, a wide understanding in New Zealand that actually we, we want to be prepared in case something does happen, or that at least everyone has a role to play in, in having that preparedness in case something does happen. Thank you, Mark. This has been terrific. Let's close with a consideration of... You know, as you're thinking about 
the, the next phase, looking ahead for the next year, let's say, what are you most concerned about? I think it's that latter scenario that I've just described where someone leaves managed isolation after 14 days. 14 days is, is normally enough time to let the virus sort of lapse in someone, but maybe this one person is an outlier and they leave managed isolation and they go to a rugby match that night. Then they go to a cafe the next day in a pub. And then the day after that, they wake up with a sore throat. They call their doctor, they get tested for COVID-19. And by then it's sort of too late. If it's moving through the community at that point and no one's scanning QR codes or, or there's no other contact tracing solution, you know, the hope is we have the contact tracing capability and the testing capability to rein it in. But you shouldn't have to rely on that as a last resort. There's other things that people could be doing. Um, and I don't think, even as we're aware of what's happened in Melbourne, I don't think they're quite appreciative of the fact that it still could happen here. I see. So one last question. We ask this of everyone that comes on this podcast series, which is what gives you the greatest hope? I think that um, the way the country responded to COVID-19 and came together against it was, I would say, fairly inspirational. And the hope is that you can turn that towards other problems as well, particularly climate change. An entire country was able to shut down its economy. In fact, the entire globe was able to shut down its economy to deal with coronavirus. But in the long term, the impact of climate change will be worse. And that sort of ambition or action isn't, isn't visible, I think, on the global stage or in New Zealand. So this may be laying the groundwork for a much more effective response. That's the hope that, that people understand that actually when there's a crisis, we have the ability to respond to it, even if we are a small country. Great. Thank you so much, Mark, for being with us and for sharing all of your thoughts. Congratulations on all the great work that you've been doing. We look forward to continuing to read your work. Don't ease up. I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> and good luck with everything. And thank you so much. Thanks so much. <laughs>